Welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast from Ohio Humanities. In this series, we explore democracy and the informed citizen. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and in this episode, I'm joined by writer and reporter Tim Ferrum, who's going to be talking about the landscape of local newspapers in Ohio. As I speak, it's the 15th of June, 2020, and we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. So we're recording this interview remotely from our respective homes in Columbus, Ohio. Tim Farron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, even if remotely. So I guess I'm going to start by asking you if you could tell me a bit about your own career trajectory, because I know you've been a reporter for uh, three decades at least. Actually, uh, I began four decades ago in Lorain, Ohio. It's a small steel mill town up uh, in northern Ohio. I was an editor and writer there for about 10 years. And then uh, I came down to Columbus to work at the Columbus Dispatch and spent 30 years there. Uh, Was a writer in the features section for a number of years and was for part of those uh, years a television critic. And then uh, when the Great Recession hit in 2008-2009, the dispatch basically eliminated all of its full-time critics, and they approached me and said, well, you know, you did cover the business side of television and radio, and we do need a business reporter to add to our business staff, so how about it? And I said, well, you know, the checks are are not going to bounce, so I guess I'm your new business reporter. And I spent uh, a number of years doing that until uh, May of 2019 when they had six people. They had to lay off because they didn't make their financial numbers, and I was one of them. So that uh, that was the end of that, and for the last year... I've been doing freelance uh, reporting and writing, uh, including for the Ohio Humanities magazine, Pathways. Right. You just sent me a draft of the article that's going to be published later this year. It's got the title, Local News Ohio, stemming the slide towards a news desert. I don't know if that's going to be the final title. Okay, so it's a working title, but people can look out for that in the issue of Pathways under whatever name it is called. So can you tell me a little bit how, in these four decades of working in journalism in Ohio, that you've seen the landscape of newspapers change in the state and across America? Gosh, where to begin? It's vast. For many, many, many years, things, at least the business model aspect, was very much the same at newspapers all around the state and the country. Newspapers made their money by classified ads and display ads and a little bit of dough off of subscription and newsstand sales. And things just kind of kept getting better and better uh, with the economy. And uh, many newspapers sort of combined or folded as the way people live changed as well. Uh, Suburbanization of the country, many cities, Uh, wound up affecting newsstand sales of many newspapers, and that led to subscription becoming the the main driver. And then uh, people's uh, habits to get up in the morning, want to read the paper, 
and then drive into work, then drive home to their suburban place. So morning papers became the thing and afternoon papers slowly began to dissipate before long in Columbus. The Columbus Dispatch was for many years the evening dispatch. And then in the 1980s, the dispatch owners said, we have to go to morning publication. That's just crazy for us to be in the evening as Columbus had become very suburbanized. In Columbus, I should add, like many cities around the country, there were multiple newspapers. It was the Dispatch, the Citizen, and the Ohio State Journal. Well, the Journal and the Citizen combined at one point in the 20th century and became the Citizen Journal. But the Dispatch was kind of the dominant paper, even though it was afternoon. But the folks at the Dispatch saw the the writing on the wall and decided they were going to go morning. Well, by that point, the Citizen Journal was struggling. They decided to close that down. And the, the dispatch went to mornings and became the only show in town, very much like many, many other cities and towns across America. So that went on from uh, the early, mid-1980s. And uh, they really had some of their salad days in the 90s. and early 2000s, the dispatch. And then, of course, the economy uh, really put a, a big, big hammerlock on many papers. But by that point, early 2000s, this thing called the internet had come on, and there were some severe complications. Interestingly, the dispatch was one of the first, they like to say the first, paper with a uh, news website. This was through its partnership with CompuServe, which was an early name in uh, online email and various other things. And Columbus was a sort of a proto Silicon Valley at that point. But I remember uh, this was in the 90s when we went on online. I remember thinking, yeah, this is great, but how are you going to make money off of this? And over the years, everybody got online, newspapers, and they were all giving away news because, oh gosh, these websites and online tech companies, they needed help to get this thing called the internet going. Of course, before you know it, there's this little thing called Craigslist which basically destroyed the classified advertising market, which was a huge, huge income stream for for most newspapers. That left newspapers with uh, so-called display ads, the big full-page advertisements from car dealers and department stores and the like. And, of course, subscriptions, which the old saying was, well, subscriptions and newsstand sale, that basically covers no more than ink and paper cost for newspapers. So it was down to the display ads. And then along comes Facebook, Google, Amazon, and they too start showing up with big display ads 
online and much like Craigslist destroyed the classified ad market for newspapers, the big tech companies gobbled up all of the display ad market for newspapers as well. So the business model is frequently described as being completely broken and there have been people thrashing around now for 10 years trying to figure out, well, how can they continue making money? And um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there's been a, a huge uh, acquisition spree going on among many newspapers. Gannett and uh, then the, uh, the new owners of The Dispatch a few years ago, Gatehouse, on newspapers. They're claiming that, uh, well, uh, we'll get by by synergies, by having hundreds and hundreds of papers in the back office and the, even some of the copy desk functions will be done in a centralized place. And that's just not really a great thing. I noticed during the few years after Gatehouse had bought the dispatch, they uh, centralized some of our copy desk in a universal desk they have in Austin, Texas. And there were any number of times when my wife would be looking at a story in the dispatch and say, does this person who wrote the headline even know where, you know, Hilliard is or Grove City or, you know, Grandview Heights? And I said, probably not, because uh, the person who wrote that headline is probably in Austin, Texas, and probably has never even visited Ohio, much less Columbus. So that creates untold numbers of errors, which of course are the bane of newspaper existence because what we have to sell to readers is our credibility, our truthfulness our accuracy, as well as our fairness. You know, if we're not accurate, we're destroying ourselves. And um, that's been what's happening. Right. I um, just read an article on the pointer.org website, which I'll post a link to in the notes that accompany this podcast. But it's headlined at Gannett's Ithaca Journal. So it's talking about Ithaca, New York. Local news staffing is down to one reporter. And the subheadline is saying it's common for the smallest of Gannett's 260 regional outlets to have staffs of five or fewer. And later in this article, it says it's very common for the Ithaca Journal to have absolutely no news about Ithaca in. And I'm sure it's the same for newspapers here in Ohio. I think the term you use is ghost newspapers. So what does ghost newspaper mean? Well, as a company like Gannett comes in and gobbles up properties, they're making small amount of money off of some local advertisers whom they can convince the product, the newspaper, will be still something that can serve your hyper-local marketplace. That's all well and good, but they're really not making a lot of money doing that. And therefore, what's your biggest expense? Well, your reporting staff. So they whittle down and whittle down and whittle down. Uh, <laughs> I can personally attest to how that goes. And in smaller papers, of course, they just whittle down to practically nothing. A ghost newspaper, therefore, becomes the nameplate 
And then there's all sorts of stuff supplied either by you know, wire service, the Associated Press, or by the big company that owns the paper. Gannett, of course, is the main company uh, behind USA Today. And they describe a USA Today network, uh, which means all of the papers they own. So Gannett and Gatehouse merged within the last year. What happens is that a small paper in Ohio that the Gannett-Gatehouse merger owns, well, they might have one reporter, and how much can that reporter really do? How much can that reporter cover? Not much. Uh, and so the rest of the stories are either Associated Press or things that might have been written by somebody at the Columbus Dispatch. I saw this happen quite a lot. I'd write something that had a certain statewide interest in the business section, and what do you know? That would wind up being in uh, you know, a paper in Akron, a paper in Canton, a paper in Newark, Ohio, just all over. It'd have my byline, but it'd be in one of those newspapers. So these ghost newspapers, they've got news, but really how much really local news are you getting? Not terribly much. Even, even in a place like Columbus, my wife, who's a fourth or fifth generation Columbusite, she said she's noticed a dip in the amount of really locally produced stuff that she sees in the dispatch. So if Gannett is buying all these newspapers and in some places there's one reporter and a lot of places there's fewer than five, right. but is that better than nothing at all? Well, yes, although, you know, in some places, do they really have one reporter or is it somebody who's, uh, you know, there's only so much you can cover one person. Frequently what happens is they come into a market, they buy this paper, and they look at the bottom line. Who are they paying the most money? Well, typically, that would be somebody who's been there for, oh gosh, I don't know, maybe 30 years. And um, okay, so they say, Tim, uh, see you later. We need to save money. So you've done that. So what happens? Now you've got a staff of people maybe just out of college, which is fine, but we've traditionally viewed news reporting as something where you're covering a beat and you develop a certain amount of institutional memory about um, what's happened at City Hall. You develop uh, sources over the long term. And if, say, I'm gone from the dispatch, there are a lot of people I know, a lot of things I've covered. Uh, if it's going to be covered at all, it's going to be on a kind of um, triage basis. And the people who are covering it are a couple of years out of school, and they might not have any idea who to call, how to get the background information that they need, 
And actually, I have gotten a few calls over the last year from people saying such and such happened on one of my old beats. Who do we need to call? And my wife has said, are you getting a, a consulting fee for this? I said, you know, no. <laughs> Obviously, I'm doing it because the person uh, who's calling me is a, a friend and, and colleague, and I would like them to succeed. And also, I would like for the news to be covered well. But <laughs> that's not a really great model to follow. You know, there might be times when there will be markets and beats where the person who is let go might not view the 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 old company with much charity or the person left at the paper might not even know to to call the old hand reporter. So, you know, you're just left with somebody who's desperately trying to do the job but isn't given enough tools. You've quoted some figures in the draft of this article that you've written for Pathways. From Pew, it says that between 2008 and 2019, newsroom employment fell from 71,000 workers to 35,000 workers. And in Ohio, newsroom jobs fell from 2,870 in 2012 to 1,640 in 2018. So that's almost a half reduction, not quite. And that's to 2018. And the last two years, you know. I know. And you say that the pandemic has created more problems for local newsrooms, which seems ironic because it seems like surely now we need local news more than ever. So why is that happening? Well, again, yes, it's an all hands on deck situation for newsrooms, but paying for those reporters because of the economic downturn caused by the shutdown. Where's the money going to come from to pay for the reporters? So Gatehouse Gannett, uh, the folks behind the dispatch, my old paper, at the dispatch, they announced furloughs so that one week out of the month, the reporters are off. And I do mean off. They're not getting paid for that one week. And so <laughs> if you're having a person on furlough one week a month, everybody on your staff is taking furlough, well, then you're cutting your effective ability to, to cover news drastically as well. You know, it's the economy swings in and the brutal facts are that, yeah, if they can't pay, then they're not going to have those reporters around. You elucidate very kind of cogently in this article about why it matters, quite apart from the pandemic and the very specific issues that pertain to what's going on in the city that you're living in and what the infection rate is and so on and so forth. But you talk about the, it increases the risk of political corruption, increases the possibility of fewer people voting and less civic engagement generally. Have you seen that happening, do you think? I don't know that I have seen that, but there have been a number of studies from people like Pew, from people like Pointer, where they have looked at places that are no longer served by a publication, or at least by a healthy publication. And yes, this does happen, you know, in particular corruption, because 
what happens when there's nobody uh, watching the store? You know, in the middle of the night, when there's no reporters, democracy dies in darkness, as the Washington Post is saying in its promotional material these days. And by the way, speaking of the Washington Post, I should point out that while many, many local newspapers are not doing very well, some of the biggest papers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, so on, because they've been able to acquire hundreds of thousands, millions perhaps, um, online viewers and or subscribers, more importantly, they are able to charge a significant amount for advertising on their websites so that they can compete in the online marketplace. That's been a huge difficulty, of course, for local papers because, for the most part, if you're at a newspaper in, you know, Lima, Ohio, yeah, you might have a website, but are millions of people going to visit your website to read uh, uh, news about Lima City Hall? I don't think so. So you quote in this article from Joshua Benton, who is the director of the Neiman Journalism Lab at Harvard, which is your alma mater, local newspapers are basically little machines that spit out healthier democracies. And then the article goes on uh, to explain very well why this is the case. So you talk about the possibility of a non-profit model. Can you tell us a little bit about how that might work? And if you know of any of examples of it already taking place? Well, uh, there's um, a partnership model that's already uh, being used somewhat ProPublica, which has a very good kind of national newsroom. It's a nonprofit, and they went into Youngstown, Ohio, where there was a very interesting story about a manufacturer that's been trying to get off the ground, build a manufacturing site in that really um, economically devastated town for a number of years. And uh, the reporter who has been covering this story from the beginning, he's, again, uh, the kind of guy you want and they're getting rid of in most papers. He's been with the publication in Youngstown for 20 years. He knows the town. He knows the players. He knows the story. In fact, he's been covering it from the beginning. And when the Youngstown Vindicator went out of business last year, ProPublica, knowing that this fellow had been covering this story, approached the business publication that he had been, has been working at and said, would you like us to give you a grant to fund this fellow's salary for a year so that he can write an extended investigative piece about it? Because this is a very important story, uh, not just locally or statewide, but it happens all around the country where local elected officials, desperate to get jobs and business going in their town, will promise all sorts of things to a potential manufacturer or business. And sometimes the business will come through and the jobs will be created. But quite often, 
nothing much happens at all. There's no jobs created. Maybe the business isn't even built. Meanwhile, the local municipality is throwing money around or giving tax breaks willy-nilly. So this is something that ProPublica, being a very fine organization, they said, this 20-year veteran of your staff, we really want him to uh, do this story in partnership with us. So they offered some uh, editing and uh, background uh, research help to him, which he told me is was very appreciated. He found it to be an enriching experience for him as a, a journalist. So there's one way of going about it. The other thing, uh, of course, has been happening is that a lot of businesses, not just newspapers, have been getting stimulus money from the government during this crazy pandemic economic downturn. Many people are saying, well, you know, here's the problem. Newspapers in particular, if they're owned by a large company, there's no indication really that the new staff is going to be saved or that the money isn't just going to go to the, the venture capitalists who back it. So, you know, uh, the idea of establishing some kind of funding mechanism, you really got to be careful with that. And Research Institute Policy Matters Ohio was recommending that maybe traditional media enterprises like newspapers should be sort of urged, pushed perhaps to become nonprofits and make sure that there are guarantees that the priority is public service in news coverage and not in paying large salaries to executives who have very little, if anything, to do with covering the news. So one of the really interesting ideas to help fund these new nonprofits to cover news is some kind of tax of, <laughs> ironically, the outfits that destroyed newspapers in the first place, Facebook and Google and so on, and to create an endowment that would um, help fund these unnecessary little places to cover our democracy. Are you optimistic that that might happen? You know, a year or so ago, I wasn't because I didn't think people were really that interested in it. About a year ago, I was moderating a discussion of editorial cartoonists, most of whom had lost their jobs and were working on an uh, online platform now. And uh, we discussed where things were headed. And someone in the audience asked me and the editorial cartoonists, well, you know, how can we get to a place where we're offered news and all of the bells and whistles that a newspaper had, like editorial cartoonists. And I thought to myself, well, there's the nonprofit model, but I didn't say it at the time because nobody else really seemed interested in hearing about that. Meanwhile, now we've come into really a, um, an inflection point, as they're saying with the pandemic, with this unprecedented economic downturn that's uh, been caused by the pandemic. 
And I think a lot of people are open to, well, the system has clearly been broken in so many ways, and our democracy seems to be in a kind of perilous state. What do we do to go forward? This does seem to have echoes of a New Deal situation where, you know, FDR was, he was going to try whatever it took to uh, get the country back in shape. And uh, I would think this would be one of them. And, uh, you know, seeing various big name operations, Neiman, Pointer, uh, 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 things like that, everybody seems to be kind of hinting at or even just downright saying, look, this is going to be the way to go. Because unless you've got a big endowment taken from the outfits that essentially destroyed the newspapers in the first place. And unless you have a nonprofit that is going to be guaranteed of being not just there to make a gazillion dollars for its owners, can we really go forward as a democracy? When one of the big issues from four years ago that is continuing is not only lack of news, but misinformation. So, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of things that are just kind of coming together. And um, I think the time is right. I really do. Well, I guess that's kind of an optimistic note on which we could end this interview. Yes. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Again, my guest today was writer and reporter Tim Ferron. You can find out more about his work at the link given in the notes which accompany this podcast. And watch out for his article about local news in Ohio in a forthcoming edition of the Ohio Humanities publication, Pathways. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and this is Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast of Ohio Humanities, which is the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed here don't necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. This program is part of Democracy and the Informed Citizen, an initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The project seeks to deepen our knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. Many thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for their generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership. Thanks also to SokolovskyMusic.com, which provided the opening and closing tracks. To learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit OhioHumanities.org.